Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is John Stretch, Managing Director and CEO at ERM Power. Well, it's wonderful to have you along today. And I hope wherever you are, you're achieving great things in terms of your career and personal life. I'm looking forward to bringing this conversation with John Stretch to you. However, let me briefly introduce myself. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services for senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if we can help you in any way, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Let me now introduce to you, John Stretch. John Stretch is the Managing Director and CEO of ERM Power, an ASX listed firm that is a specialist electricity retailer to large commercial and industrial customers since 2007. John's career has taken him all over the world and he's worked in a range of sectors including IT, telecommunications and more recently the energy sector. His professional qualifications are a Bachelor of Computer Science. John lives in Brisbane with his wife and family. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with John Stretch. So, John, welcome to the Arrow Tape Podcast. It's great to have you along here today. And I suppose just to get things started, for the benefit of the people who are listening, why don't you tell us a bit about your current range of professional responsibilities? Sure, okay. Well, for the last or a little bit more than 12 months, I've been the Managing Director of ERM Power, yeah. based here in sunny Brisbane. Not so sunny today. No. <laughs> um, look, yeah, I don't know... Uh, for listeners, ER Empower is a is a really fantastic success story. Mm. Uh, um, it's had a couple of phases of its life. You know, for the longest time, ER Empower focused on developing uh, power stations yeah. uh, across Australia, and you know, there's probably half a dozen significant power stations across Australia that were developed by mm-hmm. ER Empower and Trevor, led by Trevis and Baker, and a kind of band of developers and engineers who who really you know decided this part of Australia needs more power mm-hmm. and so they'd go and figure out all the engineering of that they'd find a plot of land they'd do the development they'd go and find a financing partner a technology partner you know somebody a government to take the offtake and they'd put these incredibly complex developments together and before you knew it you had this wonderful power station uh, and and that was really really Trevor's world mm-hmm. in about 2007 the Queensland government decided that it would uh, that it shouldn't be in the retail business okay and so it said to Ergon and Energex we need you to get rid of your retail business right which was focused on the sort of large commercial industrial users 
And yeah, the government did that for the right reasons. They was taking retail risk that you know government shouldn't be taking, and went to market. And AGL bought uh, Ergon's book. Yep. Uh, Origin bought Energex's book, mm-hmm. and that's really how they got started in Queensland. Uh, and you had a group of people sitting in Ergon, you know. Uh, guys in trading and in sales who figured they were either, you know, they either didn't want to work for AGL yep. or they didn't want to be made redundant mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and came across the road and said to Trevor, you know, we think we could build a commercial and industrial energy retailer right. from a clean sheet of paper mm-hmm. that would just knock the socks off the market. Mm-hmm. And they were attracted to... ERM because of the work that had been done so far in, in building, you know, the distribution capability. Uh, they were just entrepreneurs right. looking for a backer. Right. And, you know, they saw a guy like Trevor, yep. who was is just a natural backer mm-hmm. of good ideas. And from Trevor's point of view, you know, he's spent his life building power stations. Mm-hmm. He would have thought, you know, it's probably a good idea to have a relationship with people who consume energy. Sure. So that's a kind of a natural extension. Mm-hmm. Let's give that a crack. And so the team came over in 2007. They spent a couple of years, you know, figuring out, you know, specking new systems, new processes, going and talking to some early customers, winning some early customers in Queensland, trying to stitch it all together to see whether the concept would work. And come 2010, they all decided, yep, this looks like something that will hunt. Mm-hmm. And so then took the company public mm-hmm. to get the capital required to expand the business nationally and also to buy the IT company that uh, the team had outsourced the sort of system development to. Right, okay. Because one of the things they realised was, boy, you know, this IT is going to be a real differentiator for us. Mm-hmm. and we've outsourced the development of it, it would be a great idea for us to bring that in-house. So, sure. So we control the IP. So, so tell yourself back to 2010, which is only six years ago, which mm-hmm. in you know, the energy business is nothing, because you know, this is a dinosaur of a yeah. kind of an industry. Um, and, you know, and really, they built this hit product mm-hmm. called Selling Energy to commercial industrial customers. And now, sort of move yourself on, it was like uh, December, November, December 2010 that we IPO'd. So we're only a little a tad over five years. You know, we now have revenues of you know, $2.6 billion. Now, that includes the network. When a customer buys energy from us, you know, for every, um, you know, $100 they spend with us, mm-hmm. about 50 goes on the network, mm-hmm. which we just pass through, yep. about 40 goes on energy, so the actual electrons, mm-hmm. and about 10 goes in green certificates. So, okay. so you know, and that, you know, really that, uh, the green and black electricity is what we sell and make a margin mm-hmm. on. And, you know, so why have we been so successful? Because this is a, this is a, um, this is a, a, a business, a market that has declined, you know, pretty much. Sure. You know, uh, you know, consumption is less. Mm-hmm. People care about energy efficiency. They install LED lighting. Mm-hmm. They install solar. So it's a kind of a decline in market. 
and and we've suddenly you know grown up and we've captured almost 20% share mm-hmm. and we're number two in the marketplace and the reasons the reasons pretty simple you know we use the data to give our customers a better experience okay so our customers they get accurate bills they get information on their prior day's consumption they can use that to better understand the way they're consuming electricity and if you're a big business you know that's that's pretty important to sure. you so they look at that and and say we actually like working with ER Empower because they do this far better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. If there's, there's a, a, an industry uh, uh, st- study, I guess, on, on a customer satisfaction survey, mm-hmm. which we've won five years in a row. Mm, I saw that on your report. Yeah, and we, we haven't just won. You know, last year, for example, you know, our rating was 93, mm-hmm. which is sort of world-class in, in any industry. But in the energy industry, we were 93. Our next nearest competitor were at 60. This is nationally or globally? Nationally. Nationally. So we're, you know, the people that are in our market yeah, that yeah. we compete with. And so if I can get my head around that, energy is a declining market, but you've been able to continuously grow and the biggest driver for that is just an improved customer experience. That's right. So right. We, we get our top line growth because our customers value the relationship, mm-hmm. so we have very high contract renewal rates. We win on price, but we get our bottom line growth because we use that same data to better model what our forward book looks like. Right. Because remember, we've got, whilst this year we'll, uh, we'll, we'll deliver about 18 terawatt hours of energy to mm-hmm. the market, we've got a forward book of more than 37 terawatt hours okay. that we've contracted and yet to deliver. So if 18 terawatt hours is say a billion five, we've got another, you know, two billion eight or something right. in our forward book. And you know, our life is about modeling that mm-hmm. and making sure that we deal in the wholesale market, because that's what we do. We protect the risk yeah. of the volatility of energy prices mm-hmm. we protect our customers from that risk so so but so it's you know, funnily enough it's all about data right you know, it's all about big data and we're disruptive i mean mm. we're as disruptive as you can sure uh you know we, we didn't we didn't exist and you know that uh you know six seven years ago if you look over the last four years you know, more than 75% of the energy provided to the top end, to the commercial, industrial and government market, has come from four players, uh, AGL, Origin, EA and us. Mm-hmm. And in that four years, we've almost doubled the load that we've delivered. Mm-hmm. And, and of those other three guys, one's declined by 11%. One's declined by 24%, and one's declined by 37%. So wow. it's, you know, it's a massive uh, disruption. Now we're, yeah, we're, number, we're number two in the market, and uh, this most recent result for the first half of 16, you know, we grew our load, so the energy we delivered, we grew it by 12% mm-hmm. you know, over the prior comparative period, and we grew our unit margin by 10%. So okay. 
you know, it's a, it's a, it's a model that still continues to mm-hmm. hold. So really exciting company because it's young. And now moving into the US as well. Right. Well, let's, let's, let's touch a little bit on that because, you know, one of the, one of the challenges you've got when you're, when you're a company that's been, you know, a, a small sort of group of engineers that's done these incredible power station developments and then it suddenly had this hit product in retail and ironically there hasn't been a power station built since 2008 mm-hmm. because you know consumption now has dropped there just hasn't been a need to build at all or built by ERM built at all right okay. yeah a, a, a coal or a gas sure. fired power yep. station so um, yeah so it went from being an you know an interesting alternative to it's the business mm-hmm. but we've had this fantastic growth over over the last five six years and you know we've been publicly listed for five years and you know the market was sort of starting to say to us well where do you go next mm-hmm. you know where's your next and you know we're a company that had huge success but very little in the way of strategy mm-hmm. and I don't mean that pejoratively because you know when you're a five-year-old you don't often think about what life's going to be like when you're 10 mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess yeah, that was one of the reasons, you know, when uh, they were seeking a new managing director was, you know, actually we, we need somebody who, who sort of can think about strategy, can think about, you know, all of the belts and braces of running, you know, sort of a, 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 a sort of a multi-market, multi-facet uh, company because, you know, some of the stuff we do is absolutely world leading mm-hmm. and some of the stuff we do internally is just is quite naive sure. you know yeah. because uh you know it just hasn't had uh, uh you know a lot of experience and exposure to to sort of practice some practices so and that's one of the things that really fascinated me about this about this company it was not you know how do i make the cni business better it's yeah. cracking along it was how do we build on that? Sure. Well, why don't we come back to uh, talking a bit more about ERM and the future strategy later? Because you know the podcast and the premise of this is to talk to CEOs about their careers. And sure. I, you know, you've had a very diverse and interesting background, and uh, it's interesting to see how different paths lead to certain roles. And so, why don't you go back and, and talk to us about you know for you where it all began and where you were born and and your younger life before you sort of settled into your career? Sure. Um, I was actually born in Wollongong, okay. uh, of all places. My father was a steel man, right. and uh, so he was uh, in Wollongong, and when I was about eight years old, the family got moved to Melbourne mm-hmm. because Dad's company was building a new uh, cold strip steel mill okay. in uh, Hastings in uh, the Mornington Peninsula. And so he was an engineer, or...? Oh, by that time, I mean, he was management by right, that time. Okay. So he was he was in, you know down there to to set them, to set the mill up, you yeah. know, to, to manage the construction and then okay. and then manage the operations beyond that. So um, so we sort of ended up in this sort of from the Mornington Peninsula uh, at a young age, and mm-hmm. it was I mean, terrific. It was, uh, um, Melbourne's a great place, and uh, uh, it's a great place to grow up. We mm-hmm. had. Uh, we had an absolute ball, went to a nice school, but you know, we lived on a nice property and you know, had lots of animals and you okay. know, I sort of, sort of, you know, I don't, don't want to sound like such an old 
bugger because I'm not. <laughs> but it was really not that long ago that you know that you you know your life was about sort of walking out the back door at seven thirty in sure. the morning on a Saturday and you know not coming back till eight o'clock on Saturday night. And, yep. Or doing the same thing on Sunday and you were kicking the footy or you were playing cricket or you were you know goofing off, playing tennis, going for a swim. That's right. Know, uh, and what about brothers and sisters? A couple of brothers, uh, an elder brother and, uh, and a younger brother. Okay. Um, yeah, it was, uh, um, you know, it, was, it was a good family and it was kind of interesting too. We were, you know, we were you know, really the only members of our family that were in Victoria. Everyone okay. else was in, was in New South Wales. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, either in the city or in, in Sydney or in, in the country. My dad's parents were in Crescent Head uh, in the North Coast. So so I guess it, I hadn't really thought about it that much, but certainly that that's one thing that I kind of, you know, I have done in my life, you know, you sort of moved around a lot. Yeah. You, you know, I guess you, you, you learn to or you get used to being close to your family mm-hmm. without being physically close to mm-hmm. them. And so you went to high school in Melbourne? Went to high school in Melbourne. Uh, I went to Peninsula Grammar um, uh, in uh, uh, Mount Eliza. Right. And I was there as a day boy and as a boarder. Okay. Uh, sort of towards the end of my schooling, uh, Dad got a, an assignment to the Philippines to build mm-hmm. a uh, power pl- uh, sorry, a, a steel plant there in, in joint venture with, with uh, between BHP and a, a local company. So they disappeared, and and I was at boarding school with my younger brother. My older brother was at university then, which was, which was just absolutely cool. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, boarding school was great fun, but but you know, every three times a year, you're getting on a plane and yep. going overseas and and getting all of those experiences. I then went to University of Melbourne. I mm-hmm. uh, was a resident at uh, Trinity College, mm-hmm. uh, which was again great. You know, and I think you know, if I was sort of, um, it still amazes me that I got through university in many ways because <laughs> you know when I see how my kids have to deal with you know, the amount of work that they do. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, we had a great time at uh, we had a great time at university. And uh, what was your undergraduate degree? My undergraduate degree was in computer science. Okay. Um, uh, I think it's fair to say that I started university not really being clear what mm-hmm. I wanted to do, so I started a science degree and uh, after the first year moved into computer science, okay. which was perfect because it meant that I had you know, an extra year at university Sure. Uh, and none of this sort of you know, hex or help or anything like that, I had yep. an extra free year at right. university. I remember Would, those times yeah. too. <laughs> which actually gave me, I mean, uh, it gave me a great opportunity because not only was I sort of doing something really interesting, and you know, I'm only 52, so I'm not, you know, a dinosaur, but mm-hmm. I was at university in 1981, 82, I think was when I started. And of course, that was about the time that the first PC was put in place. Okay. And so, and of course, no one had them because they were too expensive. Yep. Um, so doing computer science in those days was crazy. I mean, it was really interesting, but you had to code you, know, you were coding assembler language directly onto processes, mm-hmm. or you were, you know, working on old sort of deck facts where you had to, you know, we would get like 25 minutes compute time a week. Right. So that meant we had to do punch cards for all the data entry and, you know, you'd jump on the computer and you'd quickly compile and you'd 
try to debug as quickly as you could to run it, you know, and do that all in five minutes so you could then do a printout and then go and spend a day trying to figure out what happened before you risked right. another five minutes of compute time. Sure. But also meant, uh, I, I, you know, one of the great things I did was went and got a job in a small business. Okay. Uh, uh, which was super fun. It was a, a, a business that sold car parts, uh, okay. distributed car parts yep. through through um, panel beaters, of all things. I got to know that business really well. In fact, I ended up uh, sort of playing some quite significant roles in it. Okay. So as a uni student, I actually had a, um, a I had a company car at one wow. stage when I was at university. <laughs> but, you know, there's nothing like a small business to, I mean, to for you to really understand business. I mean, revenue is pretty obvious. You yeah. know, you've got to get someone to buy and pay. Yeah. You know, product is pretty obvious. You know, you, you've got to make sure the product is going to be bought by the customer. Service is pretty obvious. They call and yell at you if it doesn't work sort of thing. So it was um, a terrific grounding in business, um, a really terrific grounding. And I'm very, you know, I feel very fortunate. Of course, I didn't go to university thinking I'll go and work in a small business. I started this computer science degree and, and got the opportunity to do that. So, that so you worked in that business for pretty much the entire time you were uh, It was probably about two and a half years. Okay. Two and a half years. Ironically, um, you know, this one doesn't need to go out too far, but ironically, in the end, I was asked to leave <laughs> because uh, I did what I thought was a really clever deal. Right. One of their, one of their competitors. It wasn't anti-competitive. Mm-hmm. But it opened up some distribution from some of our products, which really made sense. But the um, the guy who owned the business in Sydney had, was was much more passionate about dealing with his competitor than right. I was. For me, I just saw more bottom line for the company, um, and so that taught me something as well. You, sure. know, you learn a lot about people in those regards. But what great fun! Uh, uh, finished my degree. Uh, you know, great bunch of people that I was at uni with. Um, and I ended up working for IBM, which is, again, you know, these things fall into your lap. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no uh, desire to mm-hmm. ever work for IBM. Really? I would have uh, thought doing computer science, they would be an employer of choice. No, I mean, no, not at all, because they were sort of, no, I mean, they just, you know, they were old, they were staid, you know, they were very buttoned down. And, Navy you know, suit, white shirt, red that's tie. That's right, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I thought, that's uh, not really what I want to do. But they were doing campus interviews um, the week before to companies that I really did want to work for were doing campus interviews. Okay. So I signed up for a campus interview with, an, with IBM practice because okay. it, was, it was so I was going into it really just to practice my interview skills and that was it but you know it actually looked really interesting and you know went and met some people there and do you remember seemed, who the other two companies were oh, I do but we don't need to go into, we don't need to go into that <laughs> okay no worries um, um, but uh, I, I ended up getting a couple of different offers but the one that uh, but I liked I really liked IBM and funnily enough one of you know was it was the quality of people you met during the uh, during the interview mm-hmm. process, which was fantastic. And you know, I would never have thought that, but I really enjoyed it. Now, sort of, however, that was 1986 I started, so you know, that's 30 years on. Mm. Uh, what a great company it was! Mm. I mean, it really was. Didn't feel like it at the time, but God, I learned so much uh, at that company. 
and they were in the early years I mean they just spent months and months and months on education mm-hmm. and they spent huge amounts of money mm-hmm. on making sure even though I'd just come out of four years of university taking me through business skills and finance skills and marketing skills and sales skills and you know it just with really first class education mm-hmm. and all mixed with you know um, uh, uh, you know, experiential. You know, you mm-hmm. you, you had to get, you know, get out there with customers. And was that because you were on some kind of a graduate type program, or it that was, was a gra- it was right, a graduate okay. program? Yeah, yeah. But they just the thing about IBM in those days is that they just convinced you that you could run through brick walls, right? Uh, and you know, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, that this wet behind the ears kid, you know, out of university would be convinced that he could go and talk to the CEO of Telstra mm-hmm. about what's important to him. And, but they would just tell you that that's what you can do and, mm-hmm. and give you, build up this confidence. And, and it was just loads of fun. Uh, and I sort of progressed through uh, uh, different roles there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, I had some good success. Uh, the best job I had, which again was it's extraordinary, IBM have this accelerated development program. So for people that they think, you know, IBM's a big company, and so if they want to get you right up the very top, if they think you've got a chance to do that, then they just identify that within the first five years of your employment and yep. then start banging you through. I had a job working for a guy called Brian Finn, who was the CEO of IBM Australia then. Mm-hmm. And basically, I was his shadow for almost a year. Mm-hmm. And he was fantastic. He's just one of the best mentors you would ever meet. And I had to work my butt off. I mean, I really, really worked extraordinary hours. But he, his job was, you know, to make you, to give you the experience of being a CEO. Right. Uh, you know, and again, I just think that was, that was, uh, that must have been 1993. Okay. Uh, and to, to have that extraordinary accelerated experience where basically at the start you, get, you go to every meeting that mm-hmm. he goes to. And, and were you one of a number? Or? No, no, there's just one. Right. You know, one, you know, you're a shadow. For so you one were the, the golden haired child. Yeah, and, and, but you know, they'd start and you, know, you could fall off the perch at any time in right. those programs. But you know, the, and the more you sort of show, mm-hmm. the more rope they give you. Mm-hmm. And Brian was such an excellent, um, an excellent mentor and an excellent coach that you know, by the sort of end of that time, he was really giving me lots of responsibility. Of course, it was all in his name, mm-hmm. so you know, he, he was taking the risk on it. But you know, I walked out of there thinking, you know, I've just gotten. 15 years of experience in a year and he was yeah he was at that stage he was on the board of Telstra Mm -hmm. oh I think it was called yeah it was Telstra then or maybe it was AOTC then he was on the board of National Mutual and so he you know take me down introduce me to the other directors you know let me sit in meetings that go to dinner with them you know it was just the most fantastic experience and, and one that I'm very grateful for and then, you know, and you come out from time like that, and obviously if they think, you know, that you've done okay, you know, mm-hmm. they'll just keep throwing the next challenge. Mm-hmm. So you had some pretty significant responsibility prior to leaving IBM at quite a young age then. 
Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it was again part of their acceleration. Yeah. I, was, I was doing quite well in, in Australia, and, you know, IBM really placed a lot, placed a lot of value on broadening your experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it wasn't a matter of promoting to your two bosses' job or your boss's Sure. They would want to send you somewhere far away and then bring you back, far okay. away and bring you back. So I had a role in, uh, based in Hong Kong looking after IBM's uh, telecommunications and media customers. So mm-hmm. that was a sort of a sales and client relationship role, which was, which was pretty cool. We loved mm-hmm. being in Hong Kong. Then, uh, and then, again, just out of, you know, out of luck, I guess, chance, but, you know, we, I had been doing quite a lot of deals with different telcos around the region, and Telstra being one of them, where we sort of looked at what IBM wanted to achieve in terms of outsourcing, network outsourcing, managed global IP networks, looking after multinational customers, and what the local telephone companies could do in terms of the early data and internet distribution. Okay. And so we got some pretty cool deals going. Uh, and in fact, you know, one of them resulted in a couple of joint ventures between IBM and Telstra. Right. Telstra bought uh, part of IBM's services business and we built a network services company called Advantra, mm-hmm. where Telstra and IBM uh, uh, put, put this joint venture together, which was sort of one of the deals that I, uh, I guess, Conceived probably sounds a bit conceited, but worked on with sure. a lot of people, and uh, and I sat on the board of that company, which was that must have been about 1996, 1997. But you know, Ziggy Swakowski was on the board of okay. that company. David Thody was on the board of that company. Uh, Len Lease were involved. Um, so it was really again, you know, like mm-hmm. so it was a great board, but sure. really interesting from a sort of relatively young young person living in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so what, what do you think uh, it was about you that you were demonstrating in terms of your aptitude and your attitude that enabled you to get this recognition? I mean, there'd be very, very few people who'd have the opportunity to sit on a board with that calibre of people at any time in their career, let alone, you know, at the sort of age that you were doing that. Oh, look, I mean, I think it... You know, in that instance, it was um, kind of, I, I was able to spot the opportunities, uh, the business opportunities. Right. And, and I think, you know, IBM and Telstra both thought, you know, oh, that's a driving force. Yeah. You know, he's spotted a seam in the market or okay. a change in the structure and he's, you know, he's, you know, he's got a lot of conviction in the way he's built that business case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's sort of, I guess that's probably why yeah, there was a little bit of innovation, a little bit of disruption in mm-hmm. back back then. Okay. Uh, so you obviously uh, thoroughly enjoyed your time with IBM. What eventually led you to uh, exit? Well, you know, I'd, I was working in a part of IBM, which ran. I was running the network services business across Asia Pacific. Right. And uh, so all of the internet, the ISP services, the dial services, the managed VPN, managed intranet type services, network outsourcing. And it was really, I really enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed it, mm-hmm. sort of. I enjoyed it because I'd gone from that sort of sales marketing relationship front end of the business and into, you know, actually owning the engineers and the operations and the 
call centers and the technology. So mm -hmm. it was kind of a big change for me. I was thoroughly enjoying it. Um, but as being part of that executive team, you know, one of the things we found was that from a strategy point of view, it was pretty clear some of those big players, you know, Worldcom, uh, uh, the sort of Global One Alliance, AT&T, uh, they were going to start disintermediating because mm -hmm. you know we had a we had a great business, but a huge part of our cost structure was we were purchasing from who were going to become our potential global right. competitors. So we thought that actually the best way to monetize that was to put it put it on the block, you mm -hmm. know, give one of these global players a chance to buy into this market that they aspired to because mm -hmm. they hadn't gotten there yet. So it was a good piece of strategy and it nailed it. I mean, you know, AT&T went and paid a big premium. Uh, I wasn't part of the deal. Um, you know, if you looked at the sort of prospectus for that, uh, the, the, the IM for that sale, myself and one of my colleagues, American lady, we were both, you know, not part of, not going with the business. Right, yep. And that was because IBM were, you know, we want to keep. Sure, on. we've invested a lot in That's this. That's right. Guy. So there's there's a bit of that, and uh, and and we did this great deal, and the trend, you know, and, and got away, and AT and T were purchasing, and I just found it incredibly difficult um, to be saying to I think you know at that stage we had four or five hundred people in Asia that were that were moving with the business. It's just very difficult to say to them, this is a really great thing for you and your career, but I'm not, but not mine. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so I can see that. We sort of got quite a long way through that transition process you know, before, after the sale and before completing. And I went back to IBM and I was working for a really, really great guy um, called uh, uh, Doug Ealings, who, was, who ran Global Services and IBM Global Service. And I just said, said to him, Doug, you know, this doesn't make sense to me. Mm. And at the end of the day, you know, you want this sale to work, I want the sale to work, so I think I should, I think I should go. Now, I said that with a bit of confidence because I had AT&T coming to me right. through the back door saying, look, we'd really like you to come, but, yep. you're, but you're off limits. Yep. And so we sort of broke it a nice way for that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, uh, without, you know, and it's sort of, IBM were great, they said, you know, eventually, there are a few people that weren't so great, but, if, you know, Doug certainly, who was a senior guy there, said, look, I think that's the right motives, mm -hmm. um, and go do it, and just come back if you want to come back. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did that, and that was great. You mm -hmm. know, what a great company, um, you know, IBM were, and moving to AT&T was kind of a, whole nother world because they were a, they were not a global player, believe mm -hmm. it or not. I've never, you know, they, they did business in, you know, a hundred over countries around the world, but really what they did was they supported their US customers when they were outside yeah. of the US. Yep. So, you know, I'll never forget my first, as a, an officer at uh, uh, AT&T, they had this sort of 
officer category, which I guess was about 200 people, you know, worldwide, because there were right. a gazillion people okay. for at and And I had this first officers meeting with Mike Armstrong, who was the CEO, who I'd met before, actually, uh, and I was really looking forward to working for him. And so, you know, once a quarter you'd dial into this officers telephone conference where, you know, Armstrong would give you the, the, the lay of the land. And so I dialed into the, you know, kind of it was midnight or something, I was calling in from Hong Kong. And you know, so thank you for calling, you know, the AT&T, you know, officers call. Um, what's your social security number and name? And right. I said, well, my name's John Stretch, but I don't have a social security number. And they said, well, <laughs> you, you're not able to join the call then. Right. And I said, come on. I said, <laughs> I said, I'm an officer of this company. It's my first call in. How can I not be able to call? So you've got to have a social security right. number or you can't, you can't get You're in. You're American or nothing. That's right. <laughs> so I must have been, right. I, I must have been either the first one, I must have been the first non-American or the first non-American who was irritated by the fact that right. I couldn't, couldn't call. And I didn't get into that call, but I got into subsequent ones because they relaxed once they realized they had someone who didn't have an eagle on their passport. Yeah. You know, they relaxed that rule, but it tells you something about the company. Oh, for yeah. sure. But uh, gr- gr- we had great fun. You know, in Asia, we were trying to grow the business, and we were doing we were doing a re- lot of really interesting things. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it wasn't like you're being part of IBM. I mean, you know, you, we were AT&T in Asia Pacific. We weren't just a part of yeah. another part of AT&T. Yeah. And then, and I really loved that. Um, and I was working. I had a great boss there, and it was a great bunch of people. And you know, if, in one of the things I'm blessed with in all of these things, you move to a different city or a different country or a different company, and it's just another bunch of really great people to meet with. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you know, I had loads of loads of fun there. AT and T had built this joint venture with British Telecom. Uh, what was it called? Concert. Concert. What a disaster. Right. It was just, just. You know, if you ever want to see a uh, disastrous joint venture where, you know, it was all about ego and, you know, and carving up the territory. I mean, you know, they kept talking, you know, BT had talked about, well, these are our customers we brought to the table and AT&T said, well, these are our customers. And bottom line is, you know, you don't own the customers. Mm-hmm. They choose you and you ought to be damn happy about that mm-hmm. and you ought to value that but you shouldn't get complacent about it and you watch these two companies just making an absolute cock up where basically they said right well Europe's BT's and you know North America and South America's AT&T's and sort of Asia was a bit of a you know they argued a bit over but that's why we kind of did okay in Asia because we we there was no you know kind of nastiness between the two companies but this was a, just a completely disastrous joint venture. at t had put, I think it was like several thousand employees mm-hmm. into this joint venture in Europe. And, uh, and you know, it was, a, they, they unwound it, you know, uh, uh, and, and killed the joint venture. And so my boss said to me, look, you know, would, would you consider moving to Europe to sort of re-establish at ts presence? bring all the former employees back from concert into the AT&T business. There was a sort of a, there was an existing business of maybe five or six hundred people, 
but bring in another couple of thousand and sort of give it a give it a, you know back to a strategic intent, which was really cool. I mean, I, I only wanted to do it for a couple of years because by that time my daughter was two years away from high school, or two and a half years, three years away from high school. So I said I'll do it so long as you know I leave at the end of this period of time. And what fun that was! I mean. Uh, uh, going and, you know, essentially re-establishing, mm -hmm. you know, a really solid brand and a really solid, you know, kind of customer and opportunity set and re-establishing, rebuilding trust with with employees in the market. Uh, and living in Paris too, which was... Living uh, in Paris. Which right. was, you know, an absolute... I'm know, sure your daughter would have loved that. Crack it. Well, that's... I, I actually had been to... Uh, a class at INSEAD, like a two-week executive okay, education yeah. thing. And my wife, she loves France and can speak French. And mm -hmm. I love France and can drink wine. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so we, I, I remember I was at INSEAD when we were living in Hong Kong and I called her and I said to her, Gee, you know, we've travelled here often enough, but at some stage in our life we've got to live France. I mean, it would be just such a great experience, mm -hmm. um, something that we'd really love. And it was only like six months later I get this call, you know, <laughs> saying, you know, would you consider moving to right. Paris for a couple of years to help the universe process? conspired? Yeah, it was fantastic. Just bear with me one second. Okay, so uh, you uh, moved to Paris. Yeah, and that was again, you know, kind of a set of experiences. Um, how would I? I mean. You think you've been in a kind of a diverse world in Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and to a certain extent, you know, Asia has a, a lot greater diversity in terms of, you know, religion and geography and yeah. history and so forth. And also Asia is much, much bigger mm -hmm. geographically. But boy, those Europeans, they, you know, they don't have the benefit of growth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in Asia, there's differences, but everyone's growing. So everyone's trying right. to make a buck. You yeah. Know? So there's opportunity everywhere. It's just making sure you're after the right opportunity. Whereas in Europe, you know, you've got all of this you know, diversity of culture, and you've got this incredible sort of history of antagonism, <laughs> uh, and you don't have the growth um, in the markets, and you've got this overarching thing called the EU which is, you know, just an added layer of complication mm -hmm. when you think about law and regulation and you know, whether you're in power or, or, or uh, telco, you know, it's a, it's a massive drain. But the flip side is, you know, in Europe, you know, everything's an hour and a half's flight away. Yeah. And, you know, it's so refined and mm -hmm. comfortable and mm -hmm. interesting and eye-opening and, you know, um, wow, we just had such a great time. We right. Had, we had a really cool time. And then from there into your first CEO gig. That's right. Well, that's uh, trying to sort of get myself back to Australia because, I mean, there was no... at and weren't going to sure. transfer me back to Australia. There was no um, bigger job. Uh, I then went looking for, looking for a role, and that was... Gee, I learned a lot of lessons about that one too. I mm -hmm. mean... Uh, you know, my first driver was to find a good job back in Australia, and you're doing that from Paris. So, yeah. 
you know, working with different, you know, uh, search consultants and so forth. But I tell you, it, it also taught me quite a lot, and I've got to be careful how I say this, taught me quite a lot about, you know, the sort of due diligence you need to do for roles, okay. roles like this. Yeah. Um, so I knew sort of AAPT, mm -hmm. which is the company that I came to run. Uh, you know, I knew that it was a great uh, disruptor in the marketplace, you know, had really driven change in uh, telecommunications in mm -hmm. Australia, it had sort of gotten underneath the competitors, uh, had a pretty diverse business, but it was also one that had been sort of pumped up to list and then, yep. and then sold. And it was bought by Telecom New Zealand, and it's, it's easy to sort of think this in hindsight, and you, you, you've got to ask yourself the question, why didn't I think of this mm -hmm. at the time? But there were just a couple of things that were, you know, fundamentally difficult for that for that company. The first is Telecom New Zealand overpaid for it by a mile. Okay. And the uh, and that was pretty much accepted. It wasn't that they were silly, you know, they bought at the very kind of height of the tech boom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were a lot of sexy multiples going around. Um, you know, and they convinced themselves that it was good. It was a good sale, but and they paid a couple of billion dollars for it. And it was probably worth about a third of that. Okay. You know, but even if you say to half or you know five eighths or whatever, it was worth a lot less mm -hmm. than they paid for it. And you know, why was that? Why was that an issue? Well, as CEO, it became very quickly you know the biggest drag on my time was trying to justify the carrying value of the company. Right. Because, you know, people think of board members and directors and chairmen and CEOs as, you know, these great sort of sterling, you know, hard as rock thinkers. Mm. But actually they're all people and they're all warm and fuzzy. Sure. And, you know, a write down is, you know, an admission mm -hmm. that something was worth less than what you thought it was. Mm -hmm. uh, and no one, real people don't want to do that. You know, you've got, it's very, you know, it's very hard to do that. And it should have consequences, you know, if you do that. But, you know, the, 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 and then the second part of that is that whenever you wanted to invest in the company to get the growth up, it wasn't, you know, how do we build it, build on top of the value of a $750 million company. Mm. It was, you know, the board would be thinking, well, why did you, and you can't commit incremental capital because we've already paid for that. Yeah. Okay? Uh, so, <clears throat> from a kind of an operating point of view, mm -hmm. it just was really hard mm -hmm. because you were hamstrung from the start. But you toughed it out for three and a half years. Yeah. Look, I, di I did. I mean, there was another. There's another issue there too, which is again worthwhile thinking about if you're ever in this situation and. and Again, you asked me why didn't I think about this beforehand? Um, you know, the, the the culture of AAPT was about disruption. Right. It was about being an attacker. Mm -hmm. Its owner, Telecom New Zealand, was an incumbent. You know, it was the Telstra of New Zealand. Right. So, 
yeah, the, the other thing that was fascinating was because she'd get in there, you know, at the board going, right, this is what we want to do, and we got this, 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 and this. The first thing on their mind was, could someone do that to us here? Okay. Not, okay, how do you get out there right. and, and do it? And really simple stuff, but boy, um, it, it you know, helped me a lot in future thinking. So they were empowering you to be disruptive, but when you were feeding that back, their reaction was, oh, that's pretty threatening to us. That's, it was, it was secondary. Right. You know, it was, yeah, the first thing was, what can they do to us? What can they do to us? And second, how do you, right. you kind of get on and after? So how far was it into the three and a half years that you went, mm, maybe I could have made a smarter choice here? Look, I, th- I think, um, first of all, I have no regrets. I yeah. think it was a great choice. I, you know, I had a lot of fun. I worked with some really smart people, learned a lot, great customers. We generated a lot of value for the business. So I have absolutely zero regrets. When did I wonder whether you know there was just some real structural issues in the business? Or oh, about three weeks in. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and you know, like th- like things, yeah. Most CEOs, right? You know, they, the challenge is something that you know they're bred to overcome. Right. So, you know, you you want to give it a yeah. You want to give it a big crack. So, like the board, you didn't want to have a write down on your CV. Ah, uh, no, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't call it exactly that. Right. But, but you want to you want to have a crack. Yeah, you know, sure. You want to think. Yeah, you think you can change the structure and. and and you know it was a it was a flawed it was a flawed company mm-hmm. uh, uh, with great people and okay. I still see the AAPT you know, a good smattering of executives uh, around the place right uh, because I think they're, they're, they're terrific people and so it seems that you exited that to do your own thing for a while well I did but I failed okay uh, uh, I was with uh, a, a friend. And uh, we had what we thought was a pretty good idea for, right. a, for a startup business and uh, uh, using some technology and analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we built a business plan and you know, hired some people to help us sort of draw data from the market, build a business plan, and went looking for funding. And it was, mm-hmm. that's kind of, I mean, it's really interesting, hard. Uh, and we couldn't, we couldn't get it funded because right. it, it turned out we wanted. We wanted too much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, back then we wanted, you know, twenty-five million bucks, and and you know you couldn't you couldn't get twenty-five million bucks for a startup. You can get twenty-five million bucks for you know kind sure. of a, a running business. Um, and it was in the debt collection space. Yeah, it was in it was in analytics around uh, you know sort of managing a a, 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 a receivables book. Right. Okay. So it was more like a sort of a business process outsourcing. Okay. For, for receivables, but you know it was a failure. Um, uh, sadly, because I, I think it was, I think it was a really good idea. Uh, and subsequently, you know, the idea is in the market. Yeah. Um, but uh, but at the time we couldn't we couldn't right. get it off. So that you know, you know maybe I'm not cut out for startups, <laughs> but but also you know you've got to have a lot of luck to get those things up, and, and we didn't pull it off. So then into Landis. Landis and Gear, right, which is, again, if you sort of, they all kind of connect these things. Yeah. Sort of tenuously, you know, they're sort of, 
IBM went into telecoms market, went into managed networks, mm-hmm. went into AT&T, and then AT&T, you know, sort of went into AAPT. Uh, the the Lannis and Gear was really interesting. If you'd said to me, you know, would you ever, would you ever see yourself as an executive in a smart metering company? I would have said, forget it. You know, why would I? Why would I do that? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're just networks. I mean, a smart meter is a sort of a, a you know, two two million smart meters is a two million endpoint network. Sure. And it's you know, it's like an ATM network. Mm-hmm. Meters are billing devices. So you've got to have you know reliability, availability, and so forth, and and and, and it's this this uh, structural change in an industry where for a hundred years they've been making these standalone meters that are sort mm-hmm. of spinning disks and you know a lot of engineering to them and a lot of co-engineering with network engineers, but. Um, you know, at the end of the day, people would go around and read them, and then you've got this sort of revolution where your smart meters are connected by networks, and there's all sorts of sort of it's moving from a product to a service. Mm-hmm. It's you know got big data. It's got security issues. You know, reliability issues are massive because you know a meter. You know, if a meter costs, you know, let's say two hundred bucks. And it costs you another two hundred bucks to hang it on the wall, mm. but they're expected to be out there for ten or fifteen years. So if you have a defective part, it's another two hundred bucks for someone to go visit. Right. Yep. And if you've got to do a recall and a rehang, you know it's a, you know it's a, it's massive. So the sort of engineering in reliability is pretty big. But having said all of that, the attraction for me was. Uh, it was a guy called Kevin O'Reilly, mm-hmm. who was the CEO of APM mm-hmm. uh, here. Fantastic guy, just a real visionary, who had decided he wanted to have a crack at private equity, and he thought that smart metering was going to be a thing. Okay. And so he sat there in his office in Sydney and pulled together some family money. Right. You know, um, Kerry Stokes, Fairfax. Mm-hmm his old man, you know, some celebrity type, local Sydney celebs, media types. Yep. And went, started building a, a case to purchase metering companies, software companies, network companies, all around the world mm-hmm. to go up to build a leader in smart metering in this sort of developing field. and. Ultimately, we made about, I think, 11 or 12 acquisitions uh, uh, all around the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, out of the Sydney office. Uh, we re-domiciled to Switzerland because the, one of the companies, Landis & Gear, was a Swiss company, so that helped us sort of, and had a very good brand, so it helped us centre ourselves, centre ourselves in, in Europe. Um, you know, Cameron was sort of in the sort of had done some of the initial acquisitions, but realised and his idea was that we would list in New York as okay. the exit. But he also he realised he needed help with sort of management because he bought all of these small companies that had different sort of managers come in mm-hmm. from them. But you know he needed some people that had sort of market facing mm-hmm. from an investor point of view sure. experience but most importantly had sort of 
integration uh, and sort of strategic mm -hmm. execution. I suppose uh, in your in your uh, background, this uh, tremendous uh, geographical diversity to draw upon in terms of different cultures, different environments, etc. Absolutely. Uh, so what a great what a great opportunity. It, you know, and so I met Cameron in Sydney, and he said, "Oh, you know, it'd be great. You know, you can run the business across Asia. Mm -hmm. We've got sort of two factories in India. We've got two factories in China. We've got sort of people all over the place. We've got." You know, competing brands, competing distribution, competing technologies. You know, help 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 me sort of pull it all together, which just sounded like the coolest fun, and it was. It was really just great fun. After two years of doing that in Asia Pacific, I went to Europe to run the European business, which was, you know, an order of magnitude more complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, to sort of do that same. And you lived there again. I lived in Switzerland. Yeah, okay. I lived in Switzerland for five years. Wow! Um, Talk to the family. Uh, by that time, Julia had uh, she was at university in Melbourne, so mm -hmm. she just came over for holidays. Andy, the boy, was he had his last two years at high school, so so he ended up doing that <coughs> in uh, in Switzerland. Okay. Uh, so he came he came with us. And it was just it was just awesome fun. And we ended up selling the business to. So we got it up, integrated, went through this sale process. We weren't going to get a an IPO off because, you know, as one of as these private equity things go, this just just such a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. The, the, the um, we were ready to IPO in New York, but but uh, conditions were just not there mm -hmm. to get us the money we needed. Because by that time we had our largest shareholder was the New South Wales State Government Superannuation Fund. Okay. But we had a fund uh, from. An Allianz fund out of Munich. We had a Credit Suisse fund out of New York. We had the Dubai sort of government fund, sovereign fund. We had a big fund out of Brussels, and then we still had these other sort of original investors. So the high net worth guys. Still, yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah, we had to get a result where they all won. Yep. Uh, and we ended up. Yeah, yeah, the multiples on the market were about six to seven times EBITDA. Mm -hmm. We ended up selling to Toshiba for almost 12 times EBITDA. Wow, that's a massive Everyone difference. won. It was just hard work for Jim. Right, and you were still in Switzerland at the time? Yep, yep. So you're, you're in this position that you were previously needing to find a job to come back to in Australia, or at that point would you have happily gone anywhere? Oh, no, I would have happily stayed, stayed in Europe. You know, at that time, by that time Andy, the boy, was he's at university in the US, Julia was working in Melbourne, so we could have done, we could have done anything. Right. And it was, I mean, it was really interesting, the, and again, sort of in terms of sort of takeouts, the management team at Landis and Gear was as good as it gets, mm -hmm. just as good as it gets. It was, you talk about kind of common purpose, and you know, high performing, and you know, bounced off each other. You know, Cameron sort of led the strategy as a sort of a non-executive role. The CEO there was just a great executor, uh, CFO, big brain. Uh, you know, European business, great team there. You know, challenges all over the place. But it was, yeah, it was a, it was a global executive team that was mm -hmm. you just you were just proud to be part of. We sold to Toshiba and because it all happened in a very competitive atmosphere, we had no one had any golden handcuffs right. at all. 
None at all. We all got our money for yeah. our shares yep. the day the deal closed. Right. So, but only one left of the executive team, because we kind of like the business. Yep. Toshiba hadn't, didn't have anything to integrate us to. They, they bought us because they wanted us to be, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a standalone global business unit. So we thought, oh, well, we all thought we'd give this a crack. But it didn't take long, you know, the same guys pretty much, Cameron wasn't there, yep. so we lost that strategic interest. Okay. We had then, you know, answering to the Japanese, mm-hmm. which was had all sorts of challenges, even though I'd worked in Japan and sat on boards in Japan and really enjoyed it, you could tell, I mean, it's one of my Japanese friends who's an executive in Tokyo said to me, he said, you just got to keep saying to yourself, John, the Japanese can be strange, but Toshiba are strange. <laughs> uh, so, you know, don't think, yeah, you've got to just work through it. Right. Um, but, but it took no time at all for the, just the sales, to, the, the wind to go out of the sales of the right. executive team. Yeah. So what, what was different? Mm-hmm. You know, not a lot. You know, mm-hmm. the same people, they lacked the sort of urgency we lacked the sort of common purpose. Mm. We lacked the strategic direction mm. that was coming from Cameron, but wasn't coming from Toshiba. And it just, you know, went from being a great place to work to being, oh, you know, it was just, it was really hard work. Uh, so, you know, that was, it was natural to sort of, you know, there was no reason to stay there. It was natural mm-hmm. to sort of start looking around. And, and so how did ERM come up on the radar for you then? It's. I had a call from a search guy for a job that wasn't ERM. Okay. And it was. I won't say who it was. And it was just. It was just one of those classic good luck things that. Well, you you're saying good luck to him to no. find somebody. Well, it was good luck. For, I mean, it ended up being good luck for me. Oh, because I see. What this search guy had used my CV in a long list. Right. Yeah, which you, as you know, that's a reasonable thing to get a board to start thinking about what their CEO, their new CEO should look like. Right. You throw in, you throw in a dozen CVs. And so he used my CV in a long list, Mm -hmm. not expecting that I was well suited for that company. Mm -hmm. And he called me just absolutely gobsmacked saying, look, I've got to tell you, I used your CV in a long list. Oh, without your permission? Without. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, no, which is fine, which is fine. We, we got a good, we got yeah. a good relationship. Sure. And they came back and the board, one of the directors there said he knows you and, you know, take him seriously. Right. He said, and he virtually said, so now I've got to take you seriously. Okay. And so then we went through a couple of interviews, and the interviews went quite well. I mm-hmm. with the chairman. Um, but to cut a long story short, I mean, I think that you know I didn't get that job, and 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 I didn't expect to either. I mean, it really was. It had a couple of key bits of experience. But that was back in Australia as well. It was back in okay. Australia. Yeah. And we were all a bit surprised what happened there. You know. Right. Um, uh, and, but the the search guy said. But look, he said, I do have a fantastic role for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's, you know, let me organize it. Mm-hmm. Let me, let's push forward. It was sort of as things were 
firming up here, and that's how I got involved in in, in ERM, which, okay. which was great. And again, you know, there's there's a lot of good luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you find in your career, mm-hmm. and I mean, that's just that's that's another one. Now, you still you obviously have to go through an interview process. Sure. You have to prove your wares and stuff. I was lucky that just through you know good luck mm-hmm. that, that uh, you know the the, the, the headhunter who'd put me up for this other job, because we went through a process there, you know, understood my shtick, understood mm-hmm. where my strengths and weaknesses were, and was absolutely able to recommend me into mm-hmm. this into this role. So that's how I ended up here. Right. But you know, it's a, this is a company that has you know smart meters have been a really integral part of that. So someone who knew a little bit about mm-hmm. how that was going to affect. You know, how that affects the C&I business is, mm-hmm. is a good start. But also when you start thinking about SME mm-hmm. and what sort of is going to happen over the next couple of years in the energy sector, which is going to look a little bit like telecoms, mm-hmm. you know, that went, went from, you know, just a couple of very simple products and taking their customers for granted to, you know, being able to use technology to put bundles and packages of offers together, mm-hmm. you know, the energy's going to go through that same mm-hmm. revolution. And so, so you've been in the role for a year. I mean, when you first came into the role, you've touched on some of this to begin with, but um, what was the mandate? Uh, welcome to the role. This is what we want you to achieve. Oh, I don't think there was anything that firm because, I mean, I think, think the, the board really sat there and said, look, we think the company's running pretty well as a C&I mm-hmm. retailer. But boy, we want you to get in and say, well, you know, what's next? Okay. You know, to come back and tell us really what you think the key things are. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, apart from sort of getting to know the team, who were, who are just a fantastic, you know, fantastic team. Um, you know, that all of them are absolute experts in mm-hmm. the world. I mean, they've built this company from scratch. Mm-hmm. So. You know the the sort of intellectual buy-in is strong, and the emotional buy-in is 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 very strong to the success of this business. Um, but it really it was two things I think. One was to really focus on um, the strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, what are we What are we really good at? Why are we really good at it? And then how can we How can we expand? And so, you know that that, and and then the second was the people. The people side, you know, mm-hmm. we were a pretty flat organisation. We hadn't done a lot of people development, hadn't done a lot of performance management, had never done a an engagement survey, for okay. example. Okay. So here we are, a, a team, a group of people that said, yeah, that it's clear people are a differentiator for mm-hmm. us. Our ability to solve problems as a team is a real differentiator for us. But we had no metric which mm-hmm. we could measure. Okay. and make sure that we continue okay. to invest in that. So they were the sort of two areas and we, on the strategy front, you know, there was a, there was a few things that we needed to do. Um, we had made some steps into SME, mm-hmm. uh, but, you, you know, it was really to understand the dynamic of that and, you know, the single side SME, you know, which are really the sort of butchers and bakers and candlestick yeah. makers, yeah. it's a really rugged business. You can lose mm-hmm. your shirt on that. You can win plenty of customers and lose money. Right. So, you know, helping sort of get our heads around 
how we're going to enter and grow in that mm -hmm. space. The multi-site SME is more about industry processes, and we were doing a good job there, but you know, making sure mm -hmm. that we capitalised on that. Um, we had, as after I was um, after I was hired before I started, uh, I was hired in uh, September, I think, and I didn't start till February. Mm -hmm. um, we pushed through with a, an acquisition in the US, mm -hmm. and that was really. You know, if this if this proposition around data and customer satisfaction drove, you know, industry leading growth in a saturated market, a saturated and declining market, mm -hmm. why wouldn't that work in the US? Sure. And uh, uh, so, focusing a lot on getting the strategic rationale and then the execution of that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, where we basically completed that deal mm -hmm. around about the time I started. Right. Was really was really interesting. Entering the solutions business, um, uh, you know, ERM, you know, one in five businesses, governments, and industrials now buy from us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, one in five. Yeah, wow. so when we got almost twenty percent share, sure. so you know, so big customers, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and just I think about. Uh, maybe just shy of thirty percent of our businesses in Queensland. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're you know we're, we're big all over Australia, um, and so so they have their energy spend with us. They purchase their energy from us. We've got a greater you know we've got an industry leading customer satisfaction by a mile. So mm -hmm. we've got by a mile ahead. Of, so we've got a level of trust with our customers. And we have that level of trust because we understand their consumption data better than anybody else and we feed it to them in mm -hmm. information, whether that's accurate bills or, or information around their consumption. So, but we think of them as uh, $4 of gross margin for every megawatt hour they consume. Right. And that's it. You know, mm -hmm. the way you generate more gross margin is to sell more megawatt hours. Yeah. The way you sell more megawatt hours is go and find more customers. Sure. Um, and the concept of how do we expand our margin within a customer by selling them more products, we just hadn't even thought about mm -hmm. it. We hadn't spent a lot of time on a little bit, but not a lot. But you know, it's it's clear that when you think of things like customers' desire to understand all their sources of energy so to get more of that analytic information into their hands to to understand all of the areas where they consume energy whether it's you know in their building or in their lighting or in their air conditioning or in their in their industrial processes so to get that information in a form that's usable to them mm. and allow them to make decisions around the way they operate their business or invest in infrastructure mm -hmm. Uh, is something that we, you know, we clearly should be doing. Sure. You know? uh, uh, and even go a step further and offer them ways to reduce their energy, mm -hmm. you know, which might sound a bit counterintuitive, but there's an awful lot of value. You know, we've got, you know, a lot of, you know, renewable energy targets to achieve. Uh, but also we can help customers reduce their consumption. Yeah, and I suppose it's that balance between uh, 
individual reduction versus the cost of acquiring a new client versus retaining one. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's all sorts of reasons right. why that makes sense. So, so what we've done recently, we, we went and bought a company around that, that does analytics and management information on the customer side, a company right. called GreenSense. Okay. We went and bought an LED lighting company, mm -hmm. which, you know, so we're going to be able to go into our customers. Because we know their consumption, we'll be able to look at, you know, each of our customers and say, you know what, you know, we think X percent knowing your industry of your spend is mm -hmm. going on lighting. And we think we can go and do a, uh, you know, a design for you mm -hmm. to replace all of your current lighting mm -hmm. with LED lighting. Right. And we'll also, so that'll reduce your energy bill, and we'll also finance that for you, so you don't have to pay it all up front. Right. You know, we'll just include it on your energy bill right. for the next three years. Clever. Say. And, you know, we'll, and we'll all win out of this. Right. Um, and, yeah, we think, and we've got a long list of services mm -hmm. over the next sort of six, seven years. Right. So the future's looking pretty exciting. Oh, yeah, we're going to, and it's, it's so interesting. It's all these sort of customer side yeah. technologies. Um, and there's no shortage of really smart people, but they're all in small businesses. So, you know, there's, there's lighting companies all over the place, or there's, you know, the analytics engines all over the place. But they're all sort of 10, 15, 20, 25 man shops, mm -hmm. people shops, that have got some cool technology, mm -hmm. but they don't have access to the capital, they don't have access to the customers, you know, they don't have, uh, you know, they don't have reputation mm -hmm. uh, to get them in. And, you know, we can make these small acquisitions against our customer base with our sort of, you know, knowledge and, and, and trusted relationship. Mm -hmm. And we think we can really scale these things very quickly. And I suppose your Landis experience has given you a lot of exposure to bringing acquisitions in, enveloping them, in, enveloping them into a new culture, uh, and making a success uh, a synergistic success yeah. for everybody. Look, you know, um, that's not a it's not an easy thing to do to integrate sure. an acquisition, and you know, and every acquisition has a different formula for mm -hmm. success. But for everyone, you've done well or you've buggered up. You know, it's another set of learning experiences. They call it a scar resume. <laughs> That's right. Right. So look, John, uh, being very mindful of time because uh, you've been very generous. Uh, just to uh, to close out this conversation. Firstly, uh, the audience is largely aspiring and incumbent CEOs looking to uh, achieve their full career potential. Um, what would be some of the key pieces of wisdom that you've uh, either learn through others or develop yourself over the years that you'd like to share? Uh, look, um, I mean, there's obviously lots of, lots of things. Um, the first is you just can't possibly know everything. And, you know, the best CEOs are the ones where they make it clear that they don't know everything. Mm -hmm with a sort of a humility mm -hmm. um, that they don't know everything, but they're inspirational in the way that they synthesize, you know, teams sure. and, 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 you know, make great decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and the flip side is some of the worst CEOs that you see are the ones that can't admit that they don't know everything. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, yeah, yeah, that's something that I think, you know, um, age and experience just gives you, you are no longer stressed about 
feeling like you need to be right seen as the as the, the font for wisdom. Um, the second is doesn't matter whether it's you know your executive team, whether it's a person you know who you know runs the you know the IT help desk or the chairman or the board. I mean everyone's people, mm-hmm. and they all respond to kind of respectful discussion, fun discussion. You know, mm-hmm. everyone likes a joke. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everyone likes a joke. Um, and, but you can just never lose sight that, you know, whether it's your customers or suppliers or your board or, you know, that they're all people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, people just want to be treated treated well. And, and you know, again, you see, you see, it's a pretty easy thing to say, but you see a lot of times people, you know, treat other people poorly. Oh, for sure. And then are, are, are surprised by the result. So the other, th- the other thing I would add in is just, you know, it's all about experience. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know whether I, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, certainly at the start I didn't plan this way, but when I've had discussions with my daughter about, you know, her career, mm-hmm. You know, it's just, you've got to throw yourself in as many diverse situations. Every time you're in a new project, uh, you, you know, you, you're exposed to new experiences, whether it's the same company or a different company, different role, um, and, you know, you meet new people, you get exposed to new ideas, and, you know, one of the things that I'm really grateful for is not just from a business point of view, from a personal point of view as well. I just feel like I have been, had so many experiences mm. that have given me different ways to look at things. Um, well, it seems, you know, I've only met you for the first time today, but it's obvious that you're still incredibly passionate and, and have a, a high degree of vitality for the work that you're doing. And that it sounds like while some people who have a very considered, methodical approach to their career, more so in your case, you've just gone for it. Uh, I think there's, um, you know, one of the lucky things you get when you're in these jobs, ERM didn't do it, but I've been in a couple of jobs where they have, and for instance, one of them, I had to spend a full day with a, um, an industrial psychologist. Uh, doing psychometric testing. Doing all the testing right. and the interviews yeah. and the role plays. Uh, and that's one of the things that, um, you know, is a is both a um, blessing and a curse. Surely, I'm yeah. quite sort of willing to step into a scenario where I'm not sure what right. the solution is, yeah. but back myself mm-hmm. to find uh, find the solution, which has worked really well sure. in a lot of cases. And that example I gave you about APT, you know, maybe that's one where it worked against me. Right. You know, that, that, that perhaps if I'd been a bit more considered. But if you think, you know, like I do, that experiences, yep. you know, you, it's just a, a, a little failure that's going to help yep. you make a better decision next time. That's, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I think everything is exactly as it should be because it is. Yeah, <laughs> there's no point worrying about that's it. That's for right? sure. Now, we've talked a lot about work today, but just to close out, uh, what do you like to do when you're not at work to keep you uh, uh, energised and excited about life? Um, Lots of things. Um, I love sport, so I like to play sport and I like to, and I like to watch sport. So okay. I just go to any any live sport anywhere right. in the world. So that's great. I love to drink wine. Right. Uh, 
uh, it was something that I've had uh, done for a long time, but also, you know, really helped living in Europe. Sure. And so uh, I think wine is just a joy, and food is, you know, something to be enjoyed <laughs> with it. Me too. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so that's 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 pretty cool. That's well, one of the nice things about Brisbane too. Yeah. You know, so we weren't sure, you know. Mm. Lived in Melbourne, then Hong Kong, then Paris, then Sydney, then Zurich. We weren't sure whether, you know, um, how Brisbane was going to go, but it's been great. We, yeah. love, we love it here. And I mean, it's come a long way, uh, certainly in the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, it truly is a, a proper cosmopolitan city now. Yeah. And uh, no, I think we've got some excellent restaurants here. Well, look, John, uh, I really appreciate your time. Before we close out, any final words or anything you'd like to share with the audience before we uh, say good afternoon? Oh, no, not really. I mean, just enjoy, you know, just have fun with what you do. I mean, you know, the last thing you want to be do is, is be miserable. When you spend so much time at work and you've got so much to do, you can't get it done if you're miserable. So if you're not enjoying it, find yourself a headhunter and look for the next job. <laughs> Very good. All right, well, thanks again and uh, have a fantastic day. Good, thank you very much. Well, I hope you found that conversation as fascinating as I did. I'd never met John before this interview and I certainly found him extremely engaging and enthusiastic and I thoroughly enjoyed what he had to say. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic day.